This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father, thank you once again for the opportunity to come together and to to just talk about the incredible ways that you've not only touched our lives, Lord, but gave us healing and overcoming victory. Lord, I'm in awe when I hear Jacques' story about how, about how not only how you raised him, but as you followed him, Lord, into his sin and, and degradation, that, Lord, that you didn't leave him there. And that, Lord, that you, you yearned for him. You called him home, Lord. And as he responded, Lord, it's incredible to hear the, the awesome testimony of how you were able to not only save him, but then to stand him up, Lord, and to give him a powerful story to tell all of us. So, Lord, for my friends who may be struggling in the audience today and for what we're about to share, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit because without it, it's not going to do any good. And so, Lord, touch our hearts. And I pray, Father, that your, that your spirit will be magnified. Send the angels, Lord, to dispel the darkness that's in this room. And, Lord, for those that are struggling and in pain, Lord, I pray that today you will begin the journey of reaching them and bringing them out also. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friend. Excuse me. Can you go on with this? All right, like Mike introduced me, my name is Jacques Laguerre, and um, I'm very privileged to be here today. If it hadn't been for God's mercy and for God's grace, I really don't know where I would have been. So I'm just going to kind of tell you my story, how I kind of got into sexual sin and how God brought me out of that. Um, just a little disclaimer, um, many of the, th- the things I will talk about are adult in nature. It's not my attempt to um, glorify sin. It's not my attempt to brag about sin, but I just want you to know the details of some of the stuff that many young people are, are facing and some of the struggles. And so I'll go through my early years kind of fast because I have a lot to cover. I was born in, on April 18, 1990 to two Adventist parents. I was dedicated in church like most Adventist young people are. And my, just to give you a little background, my mother, as you see on the left, she is a nurse. My father on the right, he is a pastor, just a typical Adventist pastor and nurse combination. <laughs> Um, these are my siblings. I have one brother who's here with me right now. And you can also see my sister. And just to say, we just had like just a normal, average Adventist childhood. We spent a lot of our winters at Atitash in New Hampshire in the snow. We spent a lot of our summers in Florida. Very godly, very godly family. I was actually talking to someone a little while ago, and I was saying my mother is actually one of the most godly women I know. And so it was a very, very good upbringing. I, might, I titled this slide D minus one because this is when I was in the fourth grade. This was a year before I would be introduced to pornography for the first time. I actually went over a friend's house in the fifth grade to work on a project, and he just showed it to me on his computer. I had absolutely no clue what it was. 
I was just a kid. I never heard of pornography. I didn't even know this stuff existed. And like most people, when they're first introduced to it, very shocked. I was very shocked. He quickly closed it because I think his mom might have been coming into the room. And so from then on, I had that image inside of my brain. Um, later on, when I was on my computer, our computer was in a very public place. But when I was on the computer, I was just on a generic website. It was not a pornographic website. But I saw a picture of a woman in a bikini. And it was something that I had never seen before. And it kind of like, whoa, shocked me. I was just maybe 10 years old at the time. And that picture of a woman in a bikini is what actually led me into pornography. I actually started downloading pornography on my own. Um, like I said, our computer was in a very public place. And so I had to kind of find ways around it. I'm a 10-year-old, so I'm really not that smart. And so um, I would pretend sometimes to be tired when I knew my family was going out to the supermarket or anything like that just to get another fix of the pornography that I had been introduced to in the fifth grade and to get more of what I had seen. Also, I found it very interesting that um, Taylor said that a friend introduced him to pornography because after I saw that picture, like most kids who find something new, they want to share it. And so I printed it off and I actually brought it to school with me. And, and, and I'd even know that I was spreading the filth and the lies that had been introduced to me. By seventh grade, I was watching pornography. Um, I was watching it very, very frequently. I was reading erotic material. I had first been exposed to erotic material, not through a pornographic website, but through a website that I think thousands of people would visit every single day. I think it was something generic like AOL or Yahoo, and it had some article, I clicked on it, and boom, that was my introduction into erotic material. Up until now, I had only watched, and I watched pornography and I'd read erotic material, but I had not masturbated yet. Um, I, don't know, I don't know why, maybe it was my godly upbringing, but I kind of knew that there has to be something wrong. I kind of understood that you know, sexual gratification should only be between a mother and a father. Like I said, I had the example, but the devil was slowly and slowly chipping away at my foundation. And so for the first time, I was in the eighth grade, I was 13 years old. Um, I masturbated for the first time, and it was not even to pornography. It was actually to a very suggestive um, picture on a woman's Facebook. And um, I actually remember it was a Friday. And I remember it was a Friday because later on at church, I felt something that I had never felt before. And the only way I can describe it is I felt the way Samson must have felt after he cut his hair. There was something that I always had that I didn't know until it was gone. this with me. <laughs> and this is a picture of me in high school. Um, I like to say I was kind of like the average high schooler. I had a group of friends, but I really couldn't, I really couldn't connect as much as I would like to just because I went to a, a non-Adventist high school. And so the Sabbath was kind of like, well, the Sabbath. And it was just something that always stopped me from doing what I wanted to do. I was actually very good at sports. I, I really am still good at sports, but I choose not to play personally for personal conviction reasons. But um, I was extremely good at football. 
and my high school coach, we were the second best school in the state. We went to the state championship frequently. Many of my friends went on to play college ball. And my, my coach actually pulled me into his office one day. And he said, you know, Laguerre, if you can play on Friday nights, I have a starting spot for you on varsity. I see college in your future and maybe something even bigger. But I knew my dad being an Adventist pastor, there was no way on earth he was going to let me play football on Friday night. And so that was kind of like a resentment. I, I then started to hate the Sabbath even more. My relationship with God was going to the side. And I was getting deeper and deeper into sexual sin. And so it was just a terrible, terrible combination. And like many disgruntled Adventist youth, I found myself at an Adventist academy. The only reason, uh, Adventist university. The only reason I went to an Adventist university is because, like I said, my father's a pastor, and so it just kind of made sense financially. My dad got his MDiv from Andrews in theology. My brother graduated from Andrews. And so it was kind of like a family legacy thing. Um, I had way more freedom going in and out of the dorm, kind of just like doing whatever I felt like doing. But the sexual sin that I had fostered for so long, it definitely came out and I saw it for the first time in a relationship that I actually had with a young woman on campus. Me and her, we became close. Everyone thought we were gonna start going out. We were everywhere together. We were, you know, holding hands, not like this, but like this. To Adventists, that is very serious. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so, so my freshman year, we, we started getting a little physical, nothing that I would consider serious at the time, just a little, you know, um, making out, light petting. And after that, she expected something from me emotionally. She was like, okay, so like, what are we? And by this time, I had so degraded my mind mentally that I could not even see a woman. I just saw a Google Chrome tab to be opened and closed. Um, that summer, I actually went on a mission trip to Tanzania to paint schools, to do stuff like that, give away clothes. And even while I was on a mission trip, I still found a girl to hook up with just because that was the whole entire theme of my life. So in the morning, singing songs, painting schools, and, and at night she was in my hotel room or I was in hers. And this is just the theme that controlled my life. Um, I thought I was normal. There were many other kids on campus that were just like me. I was actually tame compared to many of the other people, some of my friends. And um, so this was just kind of like the culture many of our Adventist schools. And I'm not, to, I'm not trying to bash our Adventist institutions at all because there were many good friends that I had there as well that were planting seeds, seeds that would come to fruition later on in my life. So that summer when I come back from Tanzania, I had been so steeped in sexual sin. I had been doing so much. But because of that Adventist upbringing and that desire for some sort of pseudo-sexual purity, I was holding on to the fact that because I had not had sex, I still had not really crossed the line. And so that was something that I was still holding on to. Even though I had done so much, I had just experienced a lot of things up until this point, um, I still had not had sex. And so eventually the devil was able to convince me, listen, you've been doing all these things, you've been messing around, you've been putting your hands places, your hands have no place being. You're letting women do this, you're letting women do that to you. And so you may as well just go all the way. And so that summer, my parents, they went to the general conference in Atlanta. I convinced them to let me stay home alone. And then I invited a girl over my place and we had sex for the first time. While my parents were listening to Ted Wilson, I was fornicating in their room. Um, later on that summer, I had, I had sexual relations with, I think, two or three other females. And that began my life 
being steeped into sexual sin, actually doing what I had been studying for so long. By beholding, I had become changed. Change of pace. After two years of being at Andrews University, I transferred to Southern Adventist University. I studied outdoor leadership, and I was a pre-med major. Um, after, after I transferred to Adventist, um, Southern Adventist University, I had a chance to meet a lot of people that were on the same page that I was at the time. I was heavy into drinking. Um, I started smoking weed a lot. Um, started fornicating. Actually, within the first two weeks of me being on the campus, I found a sex partner, and she would text me, I would text her, and we would just meet wherever we agreed on. Um, the culture sexually was very, very explicit. It's not exactly what you would expect. It's very, very underground, though, and I know some people that go to Southern, they're surprised that this is even going on because it was very, very polarized. Like, there are people that, you know, you'd be playing guitar with and singing hymns, and then later on that night, you're in another person's house, and you're partying and you're clubbing, doing things that you expect to see on a secular campus. Um, sexting was very common. You know, you meet a girl, you guys start texting, you start asking for pictures, she sends you pictures. And um, I was actually very shocked because I actually knew one female who she played the guitar for Vespers. And my buddy came into my room and he's like, dude, you won't believe who just sent me a picture of herself basically naked. And he, he told me the name, which I will not name. And I was like, there's no way. I was like, there's no way you got a picture from her. And he showed me. And so that was kind of eroding at my moral fiber to think that were any good girls out there. And I wasn't a good guy myself. And so I was kind of making excuses. Like, if these people are doing it, then I can do it too. Um, Southern Adventist University, they also had a policy that if you did not go to your chapels, then you could not sign out of the, the dorm on the weekends. And so since I wanted to party on the weekends, I would go to chapel just so that I could sign out on the weekends to party. Can you hear me? Okay. And so after uh, one of the most destructive years of my life, I got kicked out of Southern Adventist University, told not to come back. I think they told me to forget their address. I was um, arrested twice that semester, and things just kept on getting crazier and crazier in my life, and I knew that I would not want to go back home. And so in November 2011, I joined the US military. And in the military, I'm an infantryman. I'm still in the military right now, stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And it's just, the MOS I'm in is just all male. So it's just, I work in a locker room. It's just a strip club culture. The strip club in the Army is like church, every weekend. You go there, you return your tithe, you drink, you listen to music that you like. It's exactly like church to many of the people in the military. And um, so my first week in out of basic training, my first week in out of basic training, a couple, buddy, a couple of my buddies and I, we had a good idea. Hey, we need some adult entertainment. So we got a hooker. And that took me into the life of soliciting prostitution just every once in a while. Um, I totally left church. I was done with church. I thought I was never coming back. Um, about two years into, a year and a half into the Army, I was at my friend's house. And we were just drinking. We were actually watching the Super Bowl. And after the Super Bowl was over, his wife had a good idea that we need to play a game. And this game is, um, I'm not going to say the name, but the purpose of the game is to conjure up spirits. And I was drunk at this time. I had been drinking for about like the past like seven hours. How is that possible? I do not know. But we had been drinking for like the past seven hours. And even in my inebriated state, I said, there's no way I'm playing this game. I was supposed to sleep on their couch. I tried to sleep on the couch. And I had the weirdest feeling in the world like there was a demon watching me. And so I get up, I drive back to my barracks room drunk, and while I was sitting 
on the bed of my barracks room, I was looking back at my life. So, how much time do I have? Hmm. So right then and there, I surrendered my life to Christ. And so, had a lot of bad habits, and I knew I would need a lot of rehab. Um, God was able to rid me of alcohol, tobacco. I couldn't really do that many drugs, because we have drug tests a lot in the military, so that was a good thing. Um, he rid me of all the music and the entertainment that was fueling my lifestyle. But the sexual sin issue was 14 years in the making, and that was the one that mm, kind of soaked into me the most. You know, because that was something that I had been experienced to at such a young age. Um, but God led me into the experience of 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful lust. He led me into the experience of 1 Corinthians 10.13 to um, that no temptation is greater than that you can handle. He led me into Psalm 119 verse 9, saying that he will, um, Psalm 119 verse 9, how will a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your law? He brought me into Psalm 119.11, teaching me to hide his word in my heart that, I would not sin against him. And God has been restoring me since that day. My late night experiences with the devil are nothing in comparison with my early morning experiences with God. Imagine what it would take for somebody to come up here and share their dirty laundry with you all. Isn't that something? Thank you. Thank you, Jacques. Were you blessed by that? You know, it's one thing for an old man like me to have victory, but for somebody 24 years old to be celibate and to have the overcoming victory through Jesus Christ, that's something to celebrate, isn't it? And if that gives me hope, I can only imagine that it would give you hope too. Amen. I'm wired up like a bomb. <laughs> Let me just tell you how good God is for just a moment. I had the opportunity uh, to meet uh, Jacques through an email asking for testimonies that would be willing to, to share their experience about coming out of sexual sin. And so Jacques and I were working on his testimony for about three months uh, before GYC this week. And what was so incredible is I was speaking with Coming Out Ministries at the North Bronx Seventh-day Adventist Church in Bronx, New York, just outside of Manhattan. And so uh, Sabbath was over about 4.30, and I decided, 
you know what, I just want a cheap piece of pizza in New York City, right? So I got on the bus, I'm heading into Manhattan, scared to death. And so as I'm riding on that bus, <laughs> right? Listen, I'm a country boy, I'm from Tennessee. And so as I'm riding on this bus, all of a sudden I get a text from Jacques and he says, Mike, are you in New York? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm on a bus heading into Manhattan. And he says, I'm visiting my parents for Christmas. They live in New York. I'm heading into the city myself to have something to eat. Isn't that amazing? God gave me the opportunity to meet Jacques that night. And not only did we share an incredible meal, this vegan restaurant that was uh, on 23rd Street, if you happen to be there sometime, but what was so incredible is that we had an opportunity to share what God's been doing in our lives. I got to actually uh, spend the evening with him, uh, walking around the city, Rockefeller Center, talking about all the history and how God was able to do some incredible things in our life. So it's a real honor to be able to hear his story and to witness that power working through a young person. When I was 20 years old, I walked out of church culture because I didn't think that God wanted me anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't justify my, my sexual thoughts and my feelings, and I couldn't make them mix with my Christianity and my Christian experience. And so you know why I walked out? Because I prayed that God would make me straight. I prayed that God would take away my same-sex attraction, and you know what? That just didn't happen. Even though I was addicted to masturbation and fantasy because pornography wasn't that available, I walked out of church culture and I said, if that's all you've got, God, I'm done. I'm out of here. And I walked out into the gay lifestyle for over 20 years. They had their arms open wide. They were willing to take me in, but I didn't realize it, that they didn't want me in the way that I wanted to be wanted. I wanted to find out what it was like to have an intimate relationship with men that wasn't sexualized. I was just really looking to affirm my own masculinity. I had gender dysphoria. I thought that I was a girl living in a boy's body. So you can imagine that Christmas and birthdays, I always got Tonka trucks and G.I. Joes when I wanted the Barbies and, and uh, all of the frilly clothes that my sisters used to get. And so again, I didn't know how to fix it. I asked God to change me, and that didn't happen for my convenience. And so for 20 years, I went into the gay lifestyle, and they did nothing but use me and spit me out. I didn't realize, but, but the labels that we endure in church culture are only half as what do you get in gay culture because everybody's looking to identify you. Are you bisexual? You know, are you a top? Are you a bottom? Are you this? Are you that? Are you the aggressive or whatever? And everyone was looking to put me in a place. And after 20 years, after being raped by my first boyfriend, after being in a, in a sexually addicted relationship, my second relationship, which, which I became a sexual addict as well, never faithful in the five relationships I was ever in in gay culture, nor did I ever witness a couple that was ever monogamous. And after 20 years, can you imagine that God still wanted me back? As filthy and defiled as I was, I came up out of that water that day, still with a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. But you know, God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And he began this journey with me. And eventually, I was willing to give up my boyfriend because what I had experienced from Jesus Christ, I couldn't live without. And he told me in his word, it was either him or my boyfriend. And it came at a heavy price. It cost me a lot. It cost me my attractions. It cost me my feelings. And it was me and Jesus Christ alone after my boyfriend broke up with me. And as he held me, as I cried bitter tears for months at a time, I was beginning this journey with Jesus Christ. And as he filled me and as he satisfied me with something greater than any boyfriend had ever given me before, the sexual addiction started to fade away. And as I gave him permission to work as only he can do, then again, he started to give me attraction to the opposite sex. And imagine going through, your, through puberty twice in your 40s. <laughs> That's right. All right. 
And so for many young people, what we do is we have an opportunity now to go around the world. We've been to Africa, we've been to Europe, we've been to Canada, Alaska. We've been all the way around the world, Brazil. And what I find 100% of the time, whether I'm speaking into a little church or an academy, a university, or even in a village in Africa, I find that people are struggling with pornography and masturbation. And some of us want out, isn't that right? And so we, I want to talk a little bit about what we struggle with. I want to talk about some of the tools that helped me along my journey. One in three women are addicted to pornography. That should be shocking. 70% of all males between the ages of 18 and 34 are addicted to pornography. 62% of Christian pastors are addicted to pornography. Last year at GYC, I had theology students coming up to me with this desperate look on their face, so afraid that they might be exposed or that somebody might overhear the fact that they were confessing to me that they were struggling with pornography. According to Covenant Eyes, every second, $3,000 is being spent on pornography. That's $11 million every hour. Every second, 28,000 people are viewing porn. That's $102 million, I'm sorry, million viewers every hour. The survey of 487 American males of college age indicate that the more pornography a man watches, the more likely he was to use it during sense, sex, request particular pornographic sex acts of his partner, deliberately conjure images of porno pornography during sex to maintain arousal, and have concerns over his own sexual performance and body image. Further, higher pornography use was negatively associated with enjoying sexually intimate behaviors with a partner. This did not come from Ellen White. This came from a local newspaper. As a matter of fact, let me tell you something that I found shocking. Did you know that to somebody who's never viewed pornography, and let me use, uh, let me use Taylor's wife as an example. When the human mind gets to be about 27, 28 years old, if it's never ever viewed pornography at all in its life, when the first view of pornography is disgusting and vile to them. However... To a young mind that's been exposed to pornography at an early age, and the average age now that I find is about eight years old, whether you're in church or not, eight years old, being exposed to not just naked images, I'm talking about hardcore pornography. What happens is it starts to change the brain. It actually adjusts the development of the brain, and what it does is it actually creates a drive and addiction towards this thing. And so what happened to me is my mother gave me my father's Playboy magazines when my father and mother divorced. Can you imagine that? She probably saw that Mike had some issues and maybe this would help. But I can still remember those images at 54 years old. I can still remember the name of the centerfold that was in those magazines. Pornography destroys a young brain much more than it does an adult brain. Child Guidance, page 445. When I gave my life to the Lord and he gave me victory over pornography and masturbation, then all of a sudden one day, after several months, I thought, you know, I can't even have a dirty thought. Did God take away my memory and my history? And I made a decision that day that brought on pornography and masturbation again in my life. Only now I profess to be an Adventist Christian after I had tasted the liberty of being free from my sin. And Child Guidance says this, those who are controlled by their passions cannot be followers of Christ. They are too much devoted to the service of their master, the originator of every evil, to leave their corrupt habits and to choose the service of Christ. Ecclesiastes 12.14 warns us that God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I have pastors that come up to me at pastor's retreats talking about how they're addicted to pornography. Four, uh, Testimonies, Volume 4, page 349, says, Self is difficult to conquer. 
Human depravity in every form is not easily brought into subjection to the Spirit of Christ. But all should be impressed with the fact that unless this victory is gained through Christ, there is no hope for them. The victory can be gained, for nothing is impossible with God. By His assisting grace, all evil temper, all human depravity may be overcome. Every Christian must learn of Christ. As I started to read in Ministry of Healing, I started to read these passages. I was not victorious over my sin. As a matter of fact, I thought that I had to be good before God would love me. And as I started to read in Ministry of Healing, it said that, that, that the same Jesus that came 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus today that wants to heal men physically, spiritually, and mentally. Isn't that right? And so what I did is I put an H and a circle in the margin, and I said, that stands for homosexuality, because you know what, Lord? I can't change who I'm attracted to. I can't change my addictions but you say that you can. Amen. And so you know what? I wasn't angry at God, but I was frustrated. And out of my frustration, I said, this is on you now. You have to heal me because I can't do it. And I'm tired of the struggle. Aren't you? Cry unto the Lord, tempted soul. Throw yourself helpless and unworthy upon Jesus and claim his very promise. The Lord will hear. He knows how strong are the inclinations of the natural heart, and he will help in every time of temptation. Messages to young people, page 67. Let me tell you something. Write these down. Put them in your mind, in your heart, in your back pocket, in your book. Put them on the back of the toilet, whatever it takes, because the more you read these, the more you realize that, like Wayne said, I can't rely on my feelings anymore, but I can stand on the Word of God. Isn't that right? Steps to Christ, page 37 says, Do not wait to feel that you are made whole, but say, I believe it. It is so. Not because I feel it, but because He has promised. Isn't that powerful? Even the power of demons is under the control of our Savior. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Amen. And the working of evil is overruled for good. Desire of Ages, page 340. Let me make it very plain for you, and forgive me if it's a little bit graphic, but one day I'd had the victory over my sin, masturbation. I had stepped into the shower. I'm completely surrounded by soap and shampoo, and all of a sudden the urge came very strongly upon me to go ahead and give in to my sin. And just as I'm standing there, and I'm telling you, the temptation was strong. As a matter of fact, it was so strong, I was trembling because I'm at this precipice, how am I going to get deliverance over this thing that just seems to have control over me? I think that some of you might be able to understand my predicament. And just then the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, why don't you claim the promise of Philippians 2 verse 5? And just then, the only thing that I could do in my frustration, and I said, all right, Lord, I give you permission to take these thoughts. And if you don't take these thoughts, I'm going to give in to my sin. And just then, my next conscious thought was baseball. And let me tell you, I hate baseball. <laughs> what was so amazing is God didn't require that I step out of the shower and read the Bible for three hours. He didn't ask me to go on a five-day fast because he wants to give me victory over my sin. Isn't that right? And so if you start collecting the promises like I started to do, not that anybody ever told me to do that, but I started to put more faith in his word than my feelings. And as I started to do that and he started to work me, for me in a very personal way, I realized that he is a very personal savior. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me break this down for you. Because I don't know that some of you even get it because many adults don't even get it. But the only power that you have in this verse is the very first word, if. If you'll just do your part, God promises to do the rest. Isn't that right? Did He say that you were faithful? Did He say that you were faithful? 
No, that's right. He said, I'm faithful. He is faithful and just. And what that means is that if I fall tonight, if I fall tomorrow morning, then is the grace of God still available to me? So if it's available to me, it doesn't give me a license to do my sin, but it says that, Mike, if you find yourself in a fallen state, get back up and come to me because I can cleanse you and restore you from all unrighteousness. Isn't that right? And so really repentance is nothing more than relational restoration. It's not just behavior modification because I might get the victory over masturbation and pornography, but I can still go to hell. Isn't that right? And so what repentance means for me now is now that I understand that Jesus is my Savior, and if He's my Savior, He's provided everything that I've needed, and He's earned back my trust. Because when I came out of homosexuality, I didn't even know how to trust a man that called himself my brother that didn't want me sexually. And that may sound a little extreme to you, but that was really where I was at. But you know, seven years it took Jesus Christ to earn back my trust, because every time I fell into another illicit situation, I would come back to Jesus and I'd say, You still want me? You saw what I did. You know everything about me. And you know what? Sometimes I tested God because I thought that like every other man that he would run to. But you know what? Jesus always said, yes, Michael, I still want you to get back up. Walk with me. First John 1, 9 is really nothing more than, than recognizing your need. You're not strong enough to battle the enemy and he never asked you to. But he said, if you'll just do the one thing and just admit what you're struggling with and submit it to me, I'll break its power and authority over you. And let me tell you something. That has to do with whether you're gay straight, addicted to pornography, addicted to sex, in a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that you're not combined in marriage. Let me tell you something. He's a powerful God, and He loves you. But if you don't know that He loves you, then why would I go and submit myself to somebody that I don't trust or think loves me? Isn't that right? We've been playing church for a really long time, and let me tell you, God had to be very real to me. And one of the things that I had to learn in my struggle is I had to admit and submit what was going on, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want to share a story. I want to share a little bit of a testimony from a man named Keegan who was raped at a birthday party in fifth grade. That's nine years old. He was held down by several boys at this party, and he was raped because they had a magazine of pornography, and they started imitating what was going on. And because they didn't have a girl at the party, Keegan was pretty-faced, and so they used him. But he talks about his victory over his bisexuality and also over the fact that he had gotten into pornography and was a pot smoker. And he has some incredible insights that I just can't say, and I'd like for him to say it. that when I left that place, I was, I was left with a decision of who I was going to choose. Was I going to go back to the world or was I going to go back to, or was I going to stay with Jesus? I was already with him. So was I going to stay with Jesus? And with freedom comes responsibility. And I was responsible for where my feet was going to take me. I was responsible for what was going to fall into my hands. I was responsible for what I was going to think up here and what I was going to say from my mouth. I had to say, Lady Gaga, shut up. I was not born this way. But I was born a son of the Most High God. I was born a revolutionist. I was born a revivalist. And I had to just allow myself to get away with the Lord and choose Him. And this thought comes to my mind. This vi video pornographic image, you know, came to my mind. And I started to think on this and play this thing in my mind. And I'm like, no, Jesus, Jesus, I don't want this. I don't want to think this way. No, no, no. I, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, son, renew your mind. And I was like how do I do that? And he was like, just change your mind. And it was like the Lord it was speaking to me and teaching me through all of this. And he says, renew your mind. And so I renew my mind. And I said, I don't want to think of that thought in the name of Jesus go. And I thought of a fire truck. 
because I renewed my mind because I wasn't, I wasn't going to entertain that thought. And so Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you, I love this part so that you can prove the will of God, that which is perfect, good, and acceptable. And so I had the choice to say, who am I going to serve here? My flesh and my desire that wants to keep thinking of this thought so I can get aroused for maybe 20 minutes, 30, however long it'll take. Or am I going to choose Jesus? And I'm going to say, okay, I don't want that. I want you. And I'm going to spend time with you. You are what I live for. And I just, I'm going to think of a fire truck and then I'm going to go to my Bible and I'm going to read my Bible. And so. Isn't that powerful? How he used the word of God. He started claiming the promises of the word of God, renewing his mind. Well, Lord, how do I do that? Wasn't that simple faith on his part? And the Lord showed him. Collect scriptures. How about the fact that, they, that God's heart flips whenever we just think of him? Isn't that beautiful? That God is not against us. He's for us. And so I want to talk about how Satan is a liar. And Keegan does a really good job of this. And so I want him to share it with you. If you fail... And if you mess up or if you feel like you did something wrong and that Jesus wasn't pleased with you, don't allow the enemy to steal you away for a day, two days, maybe a week. Don't get into condemnation to where you feel like he's too far or you messed up. Automatically go back to the throne of grace. Go back to the mercy seat and say, Jesus, I need you. And I, want, and I need you to wash me with your blood. And I need you to, of course, be my savior in this situation, but also be my king. Rule and reign over me so that I don't think those thoughts anymore. There's that position where, you, where Jesus is no longer just your savior, but he's also your Lord and your king where he's the one that calls the shots, where he's the one that guides you and instructs you. He's the one that rules and reigns over your life. And so you have to step out of that, that place of saying, I always need to be saved and step into the place where I will always be submitted and you can do whatever you want. But if you do mess up, I encourage that you don't allow the enemy to have three days where you're not spending time with the Father, where you're not because that's what he wants. Initially, he wants to separate you from God. Sin separates you from God. And if you're in sin, quickly get back to the presence of the Lord. Quickly clean up. And there's that place of repentance, of course. There's that place of saying, I don't want to be like that. God, change me and transform me. But don't get down in the pit where he's at. Rise above it and be with the Lord. I have set my life to destroy the works of darkness. And here's the here's the truth about Satan. He is a liar. He's the father of all lies. We know that. And I've I'm sure you've heard don't empower the liar. Please listen and to this. And the thing about Satan is Satan is worthless. And he wants you to make you feel like you're worthless. That's right. Satan has failed God. And he wants you to feel like you failed God. Satan is sick and he wants you to be sick. Satan is dying and he's always in fear and he wants you to be dying and always in fear. And so when I, you know, what I like to encourage people is that when you feel like you failed God or you feel like you're worthless or you feel like you have messed up really, really bad, that's the enemy. And the only power that the enemy has is the power that you give him. So let's not empower the liar. And so, and and it's just simply as saying, I'm not going to think that thought. This is what God says about me. And 
whatever he says about you, that he's ravished at one glance from your heart or that you're his son and he's your father. Or when he says he wants to abide in you and you abide in whatever it may be, just take passages of scripture that is truth and allow the truth to set you free and set you free not only from something, but into something and that's into his heart. Isn't that powerful? And so what I found is that when I would fall into my sexual sin again, after being an Adventist Christian again, after I had experienced the victory already, I started to take passage or I started to remember what Keegan said. And even in my broken state, because when I give in to masturbation, I'm still under the cloak of the enemy. And he's the one that tells me that I'm not good enough anymore and that God doesn't want me. And so what I started to claim is I started to claim some of these verses and I would submit myself even before I could clean myself off. I would come to God again and I would say, Lord, you see how broken I am. You see that I love my sin and I want to love what you love. Help me to hate what you hate. Ministry of Healing, page 71.5 says, He is watching over you, trembling child of God. Are you tempted? He will deliver. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. Ministry of Healing goes on to say, Come to me is his invitation. Whatever your anxieties and trials, spread out your case before the Lord. Your spirit will be braced for endurance. The way will be open for you to distangle yourself from embarrassment and difficulty. The weaker and more helpless that you know yourself to be, the stronger will you become in his strength. Isn't that beautiful? The heavier your burdens, the more blessed the rest in casting them upon the burden bearer. And these texts started to help me. It didn't mean I had instant success. As a matter of fact, it took me more than five minutes to get into this mess. It was probably going to take more than five minutes to get out. Isn't that right? But Christ is patient enough. And what happens is Jesus died for my sins 2,000 years ago. That means that whatever is going to happen to me tonight, tomorrow, or next week or next year, he's already paid the penalty. The only problem is the only reason why I cannot have victory in my life, the only reason that I cannot have forgiveness of my sins is if I will not submit myself to his cleansing, if I will not admit that I need help. And I believe that that's the disservice that we do to anyone that believes that same-sex attraction or that premarital sex is acceptable because what that does is that enables us to think that, that we're still okay when we're in desperate need of a Savior. Isn't that right? And here's the ultimate. When we accept anything that the Bible condemns as sin, and by the way, the Bible does not say that homosexuals are an abomination. He says that the act of homosexuality is. And so some of my friends and I, we still struggle with same-sex attraction. That does not mean it's sin. Temptation is not sin. Isn't that right? So we need to understand the terminology just a little bit more. But what that means is that Jesus wants to give me the victory and he's already paid the price if I'll just admit that according to his word, what he says is right. Isn't that right? I want to talk about what, what determines defilement. When I think of people who struggle with their dirty thoughts and everything, I understand the struggle. But for me, it's, it's kind of like... I, you know, I'm a father. I remember my daughter in her poopy, nappy phase. Babies don't even know they've pooped in their nappies when they're about five months old. You know, they'd play with it if they could get to it. And that's because they don't recognize it as defilement. Research of children has shown that, you know, like the, the one-year-old baby, they've done this experiment where they take a really gross, ugly bug. It's plastic, but it looks really real and gross. And they put it in a glass of milk. The one-year-old looks at that and drinks the milk. Then they give it to the two-year-old. The two-year-old looks at that and takes the bug out of the milk and drinks the milk. 
Then they give it to a three-year-old, and the three-year-old looks at it, and by virtue of cognitive development says, ooh, the milk itself is defiled by virtue of the insect. It takes time to learn what defiles. Makes sense. And so then babies, you know, they turn a year old and they make big poopy nappy, lo nappy loads, but now they're mobile and they run away from mommy and daddy and mom and dad have to chase the kid down and hose the kid down and repackage the kid 2,942 times a year on average, eight changes a day, I counted. <laughs> then, then the baby turns two and the baby still makes poopy nappies, but now the baby has learned, I'm not bad, mom and dad are not mad, I'm just human and mom and dad will help me if I submit my need to them. And then mom and dad spend another earnest year, as the child approaches three, it's hit or miss for a while, teaching baby that while defilement comes with the human condition, it's how you manage it that matters. And I realized when I first came to the Lord, I didn't even recognize things that defiled me. But as I began to clue in, as the spirit began to illumine, I felt convicted and afraid, thinking that God was mad and I was bad. I ran in full flight. He had to chase me down and earn back my trust, proving to me that he's already taken all of this into consideration like any parent would. And then, as I began to grow in my knowledge of him, I learned that just because I've made a mess doesn't mean I can't approach the one who makes me clean. In fact, that's the only recourse I've got. Hallelujah. And then he began to teach me the better way that as it bubbles up, don't let it slime you and everybody else. This is how you deal. You admit it, you submit it to the agent of cleansing that's greater than the power of defilement. Woo! Isn't that right? And so I want to tell you a story. There were two men that were actually in my living room on Tuesday evenings, and we were reading Ministry of Healing. Let me tell you, that's the textbook to overcome anything, whether it's appetite, sexual, anything. And as these men were starting to experience healing in my living room, they weren't struggling with same-sex attraction. They were struggling with, with pornography in their marriages. And so one day, we were talking, and my friend, he mentioned, he said, well, on Sabbath, I actually was going to church, and I told my daughter not to let the dogs in. Uh, to the garage that it wasn't going to be that cold but she did it anyway and what happened is the dogs got sick and so what happened is the dogs had diarrhea and vomiting all over the garage on that cement floor you can imagine what kind of a mess that made but because he was dressed and ready to go to church he went to church anyway and he decided that he would clean it up when he got home well he got home he changed his clothes and he went right to the job you can imagine what that looked like after it sat on the cement floor for hours the dogs had vomited in between boxes he had to clean that out and move the boxes cleaning everything up, and as he started to clean this up, he, he thought to himself, and he said, you know something, I really don't mind cleaning up after my daughter, even though I asked her not to let the dogs in. And just then the Holy Spirit spoke to my friend and said, you know, John, I don't mind cleaning up after you either. And the point that I want to make is that like those little kids that try to clean up our own mess, what happens is it only makes a bigger mess. We're not capable of cleaning up our mess, but Jesus is. As a matter of fact, he's the only one that can clean up your mess. Isn't that right? And so whatever you're struggling with, he doesn't want you to do it on your own. If you cooperate with him, with the way that he's led out, you can have that victory too if you'll just admit your need and submit it to him. Self is difficult to conquer. Human depravity in every form is not easily brought into subjection to the Spirit of Christ. But all should be impressed with the fact that unless this victory is gained through Christ, there is no hope for them. The victory can be gained, for nothing is impossible with God. By His assisting grace, all evil temper, all human depravity may be overcome, and every Christian must learn of Christ. Messages to Young People, page 67 says, Cry unto the Lord, tempted soul, and cast yourself helpless and unworthy upon Jesus, and claim his very promise, and the Lord will hear. 
He knows how strong are the inclinations of the human heart, and he will help in every time of temptation. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Hebrews 1.9 says that thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. One of the things that I had to recognize is I had to learn to hate my sin as much as I loved it. As a matter of fact, one night as I was on my way to Bible study, with my Bible on my front seat, I was driving. This man pulls up in traffic. I was very good at picking people up even in traffic. Can you imagine how low that is? And I looked at this young guy. I knew he was gay. He complimented me on my car, and that was it. I looked up at God, and I said, I want him more than I want you. At least I was being honest. And what happened then is I said, Lord, unless you intervene, I'm going for it. And what happened is we were on this chase, and I was following him. Eventually, I lost him, but I wasn't ready for prayer meeting, as you can imagine. But I went home, and I pulled out my Bible, and I said, Lord, show me. Give me strength, because I am so horny now, I don't even know what I can do. I lived within two miles of five gay bars in my neighborhood. I could have somebody at my house in 15 minutes if I got on the internet. That's how good I had gotten at my sin. And the only thing that I could do is I said, Lord, it's 7.15 on a summer night in Orlando, Florida, and the sun is still up until 9.30, and I said, I'm going to bed. That's all I can do. I gave him everything that I could do, and that was just to go to bed. And I said, if you don't, take, if you don't let me sleep all night, I said, I'll get up at midnight and I'll get laid. I'll get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I'll get on the internet and I'll have somebody come over. And so what I did is I did the only thing that I could do, which was go to sleep. And at 7.30 that night, I went to sleep. And when I woke up, it was 6 o'clock the next morning, and God had delivered me. He only asked that I give him what I could do. I had to cooperate. That didn't mean I could go to the gay bar and stand, uh, stand at the bar looking at people and think that he was going to deliver me. That doesn't make sense, does it? But as long as I cooperated with him, and the only thing I could do was go to bed, and he blessed the rest, and I started to see how he could give me triumph over my temptation. My mother smoked for over 50 years. When she gave up smoking, she said, I feel like I lost my best friend. I said, Mom, I said, how can you say that your best friend was killing you? And just then the Lord showed me and he said, Mike, your sin is killing you and it's your best friend. What we were talking about a little earlier, what Taylor was saying about how we love our sin and yet we hate our sin, isn't that right? And what I had to do is I had to be honest with myself and realize that I had to learn to hate my sin as much as I loved it. I went to my sin because sometimes it was the only comfort that I could find. And it's the only comfort that some of you can find too. As a matter of fact, there's a quote that says, Hatred of sin is vital to full salvation. Humanly speaking, no man is safe until he has learned to hate his sin as deeply as he formerly loved it. He may resist sin, he may even flee from it, but as long as there is a lingering love of sin in the heart, he is not on safe ground. Isn't that right, Jacques? It goes on to say that as love of good is vital, so also is hatred of evil. It may truly be said that our capacity for the love of the good is measured and balanced by our capacity for the hatred of evil. And so what that meant is I had to learn that I am deceitful above all, and I was constantly learning to try to find ways to indulge in my sin. As a matter of fact, I went to someone for counsel, and they said it like this. Mike, you have to, you have to imagine that your sin is this beast, that every time you indulge in masturbation, that you're feeding this beast. And what happens is every time you feed it, that beast gets fatter and happier, and it tends to be lord over your life. He said, you've got to starve it. Not only starve it, but what happens is many of us, we feel guilty, and so we don't indulge it as often. Maybe we only do it once a week, or maybe once a month, or maybe even once only six months. He said, but until you determine that it must die, you will never have victory over your sin. He says, you've got to slit its throat, you've got to stab it in the heart, and you've got to stomp its head. If you want this thing out of your life, you've got to be determined that you've got to work on this until God delivers you from it. And as Taylor 
and Jacques talked about how it didn't come immediately at first, but as they started to cue in that God wanted to help them and gave them verses to claim, what, was a, what was, had control over their lives eventually uh, started to be nothing more than a net that they could swat away. One of the verses that helped me to understand the process so much actually came from the book Education, page 294. And I hope that you'll listen to this because this is powerful, I think. It says that the divine teacher bears with the erring through all their perversity. His love does not grow cold. His efforts to win them do not cease. With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome again and again the erring, the rebellious, and even the apostate because his heart is touched with the helplessness of the little child who's been subject to rough usage. It goes on to say that the cry of human suffering never reaches his ear in vain. Though all of us are precious in his sight, it's the rough the sullen, the stubborn dispositions that draw most heavily upon his sympathy and love because he traces from cause to effect. The one who is most easily tempted and is most inclined to err is a special object of his solicitude. What that means is the way he deals with you is going to be drastically different than the way he deals with me. And what happened to you, he takes into consideration. And he says, I'll take care of it and I'll see you through it if you'll just give it to me. Isn't that right? And so as I conclude today, Another friend of mine who actually went to a, an addictions treatment council for his sexual addiction. And there were 30 men in a room and they'd been there all weekend talking about their stories. And what they did is they brought all these men, 30 men, into the basement blindfolded. They had a maze set up in the middle of the room with all these chairs. And what they did is they led all 30 men into this middle of this maze. And what they did is with their blindfolds on, they said, your next goal is to get out of the maze, to find your way out of the maze. But what they did is they closed in the maze. They put the chairs together. There was no way out. It doesn't seem really fair, does it? But what they did is they told him that you could raise your hand at any time and the counselor would come up and you could whisper in their ear a question and if you asked the right question, you could get out of the maze. They didn't know that the, that the chairs were put to a close. They thought that there was a way out. 30 men fighting their way, trying to find the way out of the maze. 10 minutes goes by, one guy gets out. 20 minutes goes by, three more guys get out. That means there's still over 20 people still in this maze. Some of the men were crying because they were frustrated. They couldn't find their way out of the maze. And my friend, he raised his hand, and the counselor came over, and he said, what's your question? And he said, is there a way out? And he said, I can't answer that. And he walked away, and again, my friend tried to feel his way out of the maze. All these men, 20-some men, now they've broken down. They're hysterically crying because they can't find their way out of the maze. And my friend raises up his hand one more time, and the counselor comes over, and he said, what's your question? And he said, will you help me? And he said, that's the answer to the question, Bob. I'll help you out. If you'll just ask him, he won't force you. He's not going to drag you into freedom, kicking and screaming. But if you ask him, I guarantee you, he will help you. Will you pray with me? Yes. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share some of the tools that you have given to me and to other men and women, Lord, that have helped us to overcome this sin in our lives. Lord, have mercy on us as a church, as a people, but Lord, mostly as an individual. There's some of the people here in this congregation, in this circle, Lord, that have been abused, that have been neglected, have been abandoned. Lord, I can't even begin to imagine their stories. I've heard the stories of my colleagues, Wayne, Danielle, from Ron, from, from Taylor, and also from uh, Jacques today. 
Lord, I can't imagine some of the, the darkness that some of the people in this room have come from. But Lord, show them who you are. Share with them the love that you have for them. And as they have listened to our stories, Lord, I pray that you will begin the journey with them as well. It doesn't mean it'll be perfect, but Lord, I praise you that you are the faithful one. I praise you that you've taken everything into consideration and you want to give us freedom. Let that freedom begin today, Lord, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.